Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Desi's going to read the patrons this week because I can't stop laughing. Okay. Paul, sorry, Erica, Tracy, Erica, Jenny, Rendy, Jabari, Doni, Jasmine, Farron, Laura, Eileen, Jennifer, Megan, Lauren, Justine, Suzanne, Ashley, Rich, Kyla, and Moose. Moose Corn. Moose. That a sounds- moose donated to our <laughs> That sounds hot. We're a little giddy. It's fine. Look, I'm giddy because I'm going on no sleep and uh, I just, I'm having a sugar rush because Desi oh. brought a big tub of Talenti <laughs> cheesecake flavored gelato and I like ate most of it. So yeah, I'm good. So a uh, good thing it's my week. Yeah. So let's see how this goes. This week, Desi, we are talking about. A crime that occurred in Los Angeles in the 1940s. Let's just start at the beginning. Okay. On the morning of February 10th, 1947, a construction worker named H.C. Shelby was headed to work when he made a grisly discovery in a field off of Grandview Boulevard where a new housing development was planned. There lie the body of 44-year-old nurse Jean French. She was lying naked under a pile of her own clothes, and she had been brutally kicked and beaten, as evidenced by the heel marks that covered her body. Jean's jaw was broken, as was her neck, and a rib had punctured her heart. Her body had been marked up with her own red lipstick. Written in the lipstick on her torso was, Fuck you, PD. And below that, Tex. Now, the police initially reported it to say, Fuck you, BD. Okay. And they speculated that, oh, this has to do with the Black Dahlia murder, which had just occurred three weeks before Jean French's body was discovered. So that was fresh on everyone's mind. This is another grisly murder of a woman left alone in a field, discovered with horrific injuries. Yeah. This must be related. But the coroner's report, he said that it was actually P.D., like, he came to the conclusion that it wasn't BD, it was PD. Right. But it's pretty, like, well-known. Like, the press always reported it as BD. I don't know. Maybe it was BD. It's one of those, what do you see when you look at oh, this? Oh, did you see pictures of it? or? Yeah, I mean, it's, like, written in lipstick. So right, so it's not very clear. It's not the neatest-looking thing, but right. I did see some pictures, and it's written pretty big and, like crazily. Right. I don't know. It's all it's in so all it's up caps. for speculation. It's up for speculation, but it's pretty like widely known that like it's it was just like a press thing that it was BD. Right. So we think it's PD. Blood on the street and drag marks in the mud indicated that she had been beaten on Grandview Boulevard before being dragged to the field and left. 
The medical examiner concluded that Jean had died at 6 a.m., just two hours before her body was discovered. The autopsy confirmed that Jean French had a blood alcohol level of 0.31. That's high, right? Yes, that's more than twice the legal limit. Okay. So Jean's car was discovered about a mile and a half away from her body in a parking lot. A resident of the neighborhood told police that he had seen the car parked there at 3.15 a.m. Let's talk about Jean French. Jean was born Jean Nettie Axford in Texas on October 6, 1902. She married her first husband, David Yandel Rather, a wealthy oil man, when she was just 18. They had a son together, also named David. At this time, Jean was working as a nurse at a hospital, but her marriage to David did not last and they became divorced in 1924. Jean and her young son moved to Los Angeles. It was there that Jean married a man in L.A., also named David, the following year. His name was David Thomas, but they divorced after a very brief time together. While Jean was traveling as a nurse for a Colombian oil company, she became enamored with aviation, and so she quit her job as a nurse with her sights set on becoming a pilot, and she got her pilot's license and joined the Women's Air Reserve. Jean, who at this time was going by Jean Axford Thomas, was written about pretty, like, like she was written about a, a little bit in the papers, like, for the next few years. And she became known as the flying nurse. So they would write these articles about her. The, fly, oh, cool. the flying nurse heads to wherever, you know. Right. The flying nurse heads to Mexico. Well, I mean, not many women were flying or pilots then. I think still, it was, right? like, still, like, a pretty novel thing yeah. at that time. And it was like, oh, and she's also a nurse. Yeah, so and it had, like, a little gimmick. Yeah, yeah, like it was ex- exciting to report about, but she did have a little bit of fame from this. Oh, like cool. she was uh, like a public figure to some degree. In October of 1931, Jean married fellow pilot Curtis Bauer, but they separated just five weeks later. The papers actually wrote about their divorce in February of 1932 because this was a divorce by airmail. That's what they called it. Oh. Because she. Had, Jean had her lawyer send the divorce papers to Mexico by airmail in order to just get a speedy one-day divorce. Because the Mexican divorce laws... Were f- could, you could get it through you faster. Could, you could get a quicker divorce. So they actually printed about it in the paper. They're like, it's okay. an airmail divorce. In July that same year, the papers reported that Jean went missing after she was set to fly to Mexico and she hadn't been heard from for weeks. But a few weeks later, she was discovered safe in Mexico City. She told the papers that she was okay and that she would be flying back to the States for for the Olympics. In 1945, Jean got married to her fourth husband, a former Marine and employee at an aircraft factory named Frank French. The marriage was not a good one, and in January of 1947, Frank was arrested after beating Jean. Jean... Refused to press charges, but the two were separated by February 2nd. It would be just over a week later when her badly beaten body was found, just a mile away from her estranged husband's new apartment. Police immediately suspected Frank French on suspicion of murder. Frank denied any involvement with the murder. He told police, quote, The last time I saw her was at midnight. I was to meet her at the aircraft factory at 11 o'clock this morning, but she didn't show up. Jean's 25-year-old son, David, was taken in for questioning. At the station, he saw his stepdad, Frank, and he said, quote, 
I've told them the truth. If you're guilty, there's a God in heaven that will take care of you. But Frank French vehemently denied killing his wife. Frank French admitted to police that he had been fighting with Jean at his apartment in Santa Monica on the night before her body was discovered. He said that she struck him with her purse in the face and that she left his apartment at midnight. He said that she had been drinking that night. Police learned that Frank had been at the aircraft factory from 7.15 a.m. to 10.45 a.m. His landlady said that she did not see him leave his apartment before then. Frank French was grilled for two hours by detectives, and he also took a lie detector test, but police were unable to link him to the murder of his wife, and he passed the polygraph test. Obviously, we know those are not accurate, (laughs) but at the time, people were like, oh, yeah, he passed it. Investigators found that the footprints at the scene did not match the footprints of Frank. Also, you know... He was he 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 kind of had an alibi. Yeah, he kind of yeah. had an alibi, and there were skid marks found at the scene at the crime, indicating that the killer had sped away in a car after the murder. But Frank French did not know how to drive a car. Oh, really? He did not drive. Huh. A waitress had seen Jean at seven thirty p.m. the night before the murder at Fatty Arbuckle's Plantation Cafe in Culver City. Oh, did you know he had a cafe? I don't think so. Is that what the menu you were looking up? <laughs> I was I was looking up a lot of menus while I was researching this episode. Okay. But specifically this one, I'm like, what's fatty cooking? You bet I'm sure the food is good. It, it's gotta be, right? Yeah. So Jean was at the plantation cafe and she was there with two men, including one with dark hair and a small mustache. The waitress told police that Jean had made a phone call at the restaurant's payphone and that she overheard her say, quote, don't bring a bottle. The landlady doesn't allow it. Mm. So Jean left the plantation cafe. Afterwards, she went straight to a West L.A. restaurant called the Turkey Bowl. (laughs) I looked up this menu. No such luck because it just gave me a bunch of Turkey Bowl stuff. Yeah. I love going from one restaurant to another. Like, that's totally me. This is my kind of woman. Yeah. She, yeah, she's like, well, let's see what kind of food they have I'm over. I'm still hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's happened to me before. Yeah. I have gone to get fast food We go to a, a restaurant and then go to fast food later? Yeah. Definitely. I, I want to do that now. It's different things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different kind of food at the turkey It's a bowl. different hunger. It's right. fulfilling. Like at the Plantation Cafe, I don't know, maybe she had something like... Hors d'oeuvres. Uh, some kind of hors d'oeuvres or like... Crab she, Louie. <laughs> she, she had a Crab Louie at the Plantation Cafe. Then she goes over to the turkey bowl and she gets turkey chili. Yeah, with on fries. On fries. Yeah. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. 
With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money, and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So she goes to the Turkey Bowl. The owner, who was a man named Ray, said that she was there between 9.30 p.m. and 10 p.m. And that she appeared intoxicated as she sat there and drank her coffee. Ray, the owner, said that he talked with Jean that night and that she vented to him about her husband. This is a quote from Ray. She said her husband was sadistic. Jean told Ray that Frank French regularly beat her and she lifted her sunglasses to reveal two black eyes. Jesus. At 10.30 p.m. that same night, Jean was spotted at a bar on Venice Boulevard. The bartender working that night said that Jean told him that she had planned on having her husband committed to the psych unit at the Veterans Hospital the following day. Police got a call at 10.45 p.m. from a concerned citizen reporting a drunk driver in a vehicle matching Jean's car's description. But by 11 p.m., Jean was at her husband Frank's apartment in Santa Monica. The two were arguing, and Jean told him to meet, and Jean told him to meet her in the morning at 11 a.m. because she was going to file for divorce and then, quote, commit him to the hospital as a psycho. <laughs> And that's I what, mean, that's a great way to get someone to meet you. <laughs> I mean, I love her. She seems fun, right? Yeah. She hit him in the face with a purse. I mean, she shouldn't be drunk driving, but <laughs> we know we know more now. <laughs> People were just like drunk driving back then, right? Yeah. Like. It's kind of insane because it's like there were no seatbelts. With the baby on their lap. <laughs> yeah, smoking with a baby on their lap, drunk driving. Like, can like, you imagine the kind of shit that our grandparents were up to? Also, it was against the law. But right? they were doing it. Yeah, because I remember like Francis Farmer was like arrested for drunk driving. Like people were getting arrested for drunk driving. Right. But it doesn't seem like it's as big a deal as it is now or something like it's like yeah. a, it's like a parking ticket or something. Well, you didn't have like coalitions of moms against drunk drivers then. Yeah. I mean, it's wild to me how yep. much people were just driving drunk. <laughs> it's crazy. I know it is crazy. <laughs> well, it's like when you watch the old shows and, and they're like smoking in the hospitals, like stuff like that, you know, it's just like, right. It's funny how like, we're just so out of that world now that right. when we see it, it's shocking. We're so sensitized to yeah. it. But, but yeah, it's right. crazy to hear. So she's wasted. She gets the fuck out of there, but she's like, you better meet me tomorrow. Yeah. Because first I'm... I'm, t- I'm going to commit you. <laughs> as a psycho. I love committing him as a psycho. <laughs> That's like the new line for every woman. Like when she breaks up with a guy. Not only that, but I'm going to commit you as a psycho. <laughs> 
I mean, maybe well, he's an he's an abusive guy. Yeah, no, like Frank, fuck, Fran- fuck him. Like, fuck Frank French. You shouldn't say it to a nice person, but to Frank French, fuck Frank. that guy. Frank French. Frank French. It sounds like like a Muppet. I don't know. <laughs> That's not a real name. I don't like it. It's too much fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> so Jean left the apartment, and she. <laughs> She did. Yes, she's my queen, dude. She's hungry because she's so drunk. <laughs> You're trying Isn't to. That why? She's definitely trying to sober up. Probably. <laughs> like I need something to soak up that alcohol. I've had those thoughts, but I'm not driving. Yeah, but I've had those thoughts sober. Where I'm like, I want to yeah. go to another restaurant. But she's feeling vindicated. You know what? She goes to a restaurant on Sepulveda called Piccadilly. Ooh, I looked up Piccadillys. I've heard of Piccadilly. I've seen yeah. the picture of it. No menu. Really? The, all these places don't exist We're spoiled. Anymore. Like, we just expect everything to be online now. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. This was a drive-in restaurant. Okay. So, like a Sonic? I guess. But drive-in, drive-thrus were, like, different. This was like, a, they had car hops. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I feel like it was a better diner food. It wasn't, like, fast food necessarily. Right. Right? It was, like, a little bit step above. So this was a diner drive-in, and I'm surprised. I guess they got there. I mean, yeah, they got there after midnight. She got there after midnight. It was a drive-in. The car hop waitress told police that she saw Jean there with a man with a mustache and dark hair. I feel like we've done like five cases of women being murdered <laughs> in the 40s, and their last known appearance was at a car hop with a, sw- a swarthy-looking man. <laughs> like, seriously. Desi. Desi. I mean, wait, am I like putting something together here? <laughs> Can you just not spoil okay. my whole fucking episode? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just the, forget it. pieces are coming together. <laughs> it's all coming together. Okay, go. Okay. So... Ah... <laughs> <laughs> A night watchman in the area told police that at 3.15 a.m. he had seen a man park Jean French's car in the West L.A. lot just a mile from where her body was found. As detectives failed to link Frank French to the murder, they began interviewing various, quote, known degenerates in the area. They always say that. Yeah. We were interviewing known... Imagine being on that list. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you know... I'm a known degenerate. Hey, and what if you ask the cop? You're like, are you looking for a specific uh, perp? Like, like, is there a profile? And they're like, oh, just known degenerates. Hey. Hey, wait a minute. I'm a family man. (laughs) So the police are interviewing the known degenerates in town, and they were all ruled out as suspects. On February 14th, Frank French was officially ruled out as a suspect and released from police custody. Jean's son, David, testified that his mother liked to frequent cocktail lounges and that she was known to make friends easily and hang out with strangers. And then he also went on to say, like, Frank is a good guy. Oh, so he had, like, a 180. Yeah, because when he was at the police station, he was like, if you did this, I'll fucking... Yeah. God's going to punish you. So he bought the polygraph, too, probably. He what? He bought the polygraph results, too, yeah, probably. Like right. People literally thought that that was it. Right, yeah. right, right. On February 17th, a 38-year-old man named Otto... It's Polish. <laughs> <I can't... laughs> I'm so sorry. 
Otto Polish. <laughs> his That's last not name. his last name. I'm just like, I'm so tired right now. And I just named Otto Parzi Jegla was a pre- <laughs> I'm sure we have lovely Polish listeners, and I feel terrible right now because that I, seems like a really hard one <laughs> to, <laughs> to your credit. Okay, can you look at this name? Okay, hold on a second. <laughs> Parzy Jegla. That's what I said. Okay, yeah. Is that not what I said? I mean, it looks like it. You said Parzy Jegla. Par- I was trying to be more authentic. I was like doing some shush. You were doing like a Sean Connery. <laughs> Otto, that's what we're going to call him. Otto okay. P was arrested in the gruesome killing of his boss, 74-year-old Alfred Hage. Otto confessed to the murder immediately. The victim, Alfred, was the publisher of a Swedish newspaper in West L.A. Alfred was murdered at his West L.A. office before being dismembered by his disgruntled employee. Jeez. (laughs) Wait, was he a known degenerate? Or he just got... This is just a... um... We're just talking of, talking okay. about what happened on February seventeenth. Okay. Okay. No, uh, but this guy, he's all of a sudden he's like arrested okay. for murdering, gruesomely murdering his boss, the seventy-four-year-old man. Otto told the police that he had beaten Alfred to death with a metal bar. He then dismembered the body with a paper cutting machine. What you know those machines? Those like uh, whoosh, those the blades, oh. like the paper cutting blades. That's brutal how do you go from never murdering <laughs> to doing that i don't know and i also like to dismember a body like how do you do that like i read that he had a really tough time dismembering this body too because it was his first time yeah i mean i feel like dismembering a, a body is a lot more difficult than some people think it is yeah i mean i, mean, I would think yeah no he, that's gruesome so first he tried with like various different things but then he ultimately dismembered the body into six pieces with the paper blade cutter. And thing. how did he have access to this? At the office? At the printing office. Oh, it was a printing office. he worked yeah, for the yeah, newspaper. Yeah. Right. So he then stuffed the body parts into boxes. Otto was questioned about the murders of both the Black Dahlia, a Elizabeth Short, that's her name, and Jean French. But Otto denied being either one of their killers. He really just wanted one man dead, his boss. Police still investigated any possible links between Otto and the murders of the two women, but could find nothing, and he was ruled out a suspect. At this time, police were trying desperately to solve this Black Dahlia murder. Right. Elizabeth Short. Because it was such a huge, uh, like, news story. So anytime there was, like, some gruesome murder, they're like, is this related? Yeah. Is this linked? Is this a serial killer? No. Otto was just a... Guy angry about getting fired by his yeah. boss. On February 25th, police arrested 31-year-old Philip Smalley on suspicion of the murder of Elizabeth Short. Philip was described by the LA Times as a, quote, transient laborer. He had admitted to being in the company of a woman matching Elizabeth Short's description a week before her murder. He was also questioned about Jean French, but he was ruled out as a suspect for that murder when it was discovered that he was in San Francisco at the time that she was killed. Jean French's murder would continue to be linked with the murder of Elizabeth Short, but suspects were quickly being ruled out for both of them. In May of 1947, the nude body of a 36-year-old woman named Dorothy Montgomery was found in a field underneath a pepper tree in South Los Angeles. 
The cause of death was strangulation, and she had been brutally beaten with some kind of weapon. Her clothing was torn to shreds. Because of the violent nature of the crime, the papers speculated whether it was connected to the murders of Jean French and Elizabeth Short. Just like I said before, every subsequent murder that was like this, the press would speculate. Now, the murder of Jean French remained unsolved, and over the next year, her name vanished from the papers. It wouldn't pop up again until 1949 when the LA Times reported that 27-year-old Ray Dempsey Gardner was arrested for the murder of a 17-year-old girl in Utah. He also admitted to murdering a 39-year-old woman in Montana. He was questioned about the murder of Jean French as well as other unsolved murders of Los Angeles women, but he was, of course, ruled out. To this day, Jean's murder has never been solved. But one man is convinced that he knows who the killer is. That's right. Steve Hodell (laughs) says that his father, George, is responsible. Really? We're going to talk about some theory. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Do you have a comment about Steve Hodell? I was just thinking about the lipstick again, because I forgot, I completely forgot about the lipstick, but I guess you'll probably get into the lipstick. More. How'd you know? I don't know, but I was just thinking like, oh yeah, the lipstick, because that never got, when you ha- mentioned the woman who was murdered, the second one who was beaten, there was no lipstick on right. her. So I was like, well, there was no lipstick. <laughs> so I was right. curious if that ever comes up again or what that was about. Right. Okay. So... For those of you who haven't listened to our White Gardenia episode, we talked about Steve Hodell in that episode because Steve Hodell believes that basically all of these women were murdered by his father, George Hodell, who was a doctor in Los Angeles. And then Steve went on to become a detective for the LAPD for like 20 fucking years. And now he writes books about conspiracies, about how his dad killed all these people. In, and how his dad's also the Zodiac killer. Yeah, he ties a lot of things together. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to report that Steve's book, The Black Dahlia Avenger, is free on Prime, Kindle. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So I read that. I need to figure out how to charge my Kindle. I know that's not the point. But you, I have the Kindle app on my phone. Oh, okay. That's what I can do. Yeah, just download the app. I prefer on my larger. It's bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, All right, let's talk about the lipstick. Because Steve talks about it in the Black Dahlia Avenger. Oh. Steve cites an incident that connects his father, George, to the lipstick. Steve says that his older brother, Duncan, recalled a wild party that their dad had at their home. This is a quote from Duncan. I remember one party where everyone was laughing and having a good time. And dad got this red lipstick and wrote on one of the women's breasts with the lipstick. She had these big, beautiful breasts, and dad took the lipstick and wrote big targets around each one. And we all laughed and had a good time. Well, that solves the murder. (laughs) (laughs) So So you're telling me George Hodel had access to red lipstick? (laughs) Yes, Desi. Okay. I'm telling you. Wow, Steve says that the writing of the lipstick on Jean French's body resembles his dad's handwriting. Okay. 
He even had a handwriting expert examine the writings on Jean with the postcards that were alleged to have been sent by the Black Dahlia killer. Because the Black Dahlia... Black Dahlia's alleged killer sent, th- like, uh, taunting postcards to the press. Okay. Like, I'm the Black Dahlia. So those two handwritings matched, according to him. According to the private handwriting expert okay. that he hired. To prove his dad was a monster. To prove his dad murdered these women, it matched. And then they compared those samples to the samples that George Hodel, like, documents he had written on. And it was highly probable, that's a quote, determined highly probable that they were all written by the same person. Okay. So the lipstick on Jean French's body, the, the threatening, taunting postcards sent by the alleged Black Dahlia killer. And then his dad's handwriting. His dad's handwriting. Mm-hmm. Steve Hodel also believes that his father had an accomplice in these murders, an old friend named Fred Sexton. Fred died in 1995 at the age of 88, But in 2001, Steve contacted his daughter to confront her about his theory about her dad and his dad. (laughs) Wow. Imagine (laughs) confronting this poor woman. Can you imagine getting that phone call? Hey, your dad died. (laughs) (laughs) He was a piece of shit serial killer. I just like the idea that he, it's like this confrontation, like not just reaching out and be like, I mean, I guess I don't know how you kind of be like, well, oh, okay, well, how are you? I, Good. I said confrontation. <laughs> okay, okay. That's my language. But okay. I don't know. We didn't know what else to call it. I yeah. feel like that's a very confrontational thing to do. Yeah. Like what else do you call this? I'm Someone, fascinated by Steve Hodel. I love this man. Yeah. I mean, I'm just in that I'm fascinated learning about him. Right. I, think, I need to like, I, every time I hear about him, I'm like, I need to go deep on this guy because I want to know the origin of every, like everything. I'm so riveted by, by this man's theories because they're fucking bonkers. In a way, it's like he almost interests me more than the dad. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it's like, I get the dad, like we've read a million stories about monsters like that. Right. Because whatever you think about if he murdered these people, he, he's clearly a fucking disgusting he's human a being. disgusting person, yeah. yes. So, but yeah, like Steve to me is like, that's more interesting. It's like, what's that? like? <laughs> it's like a compulsion almost. Yeah, it's, it's weird. It's like he's compelled. And there's some weird father-son dynamic happening. Do you know what I mean? Like, right, right, right. Like he needs to get out of underneath this shadow somehow. But it's like, you should just leave the shadow. Like, Yeah, it's just bizarre. So this is a quote from Steve in his book when he met with his father, who he thinks is his father's accomplice in all these murders. Quote, I opened our conversation with the shocking revelation that based on my two-year investigation, it was my professional opinion that our fathers had been crime partners and had committed a series of abductions and murders of lone women in Los Angeles during the mid to late 40s. So Steve says that his daughter was shocked by the news, but that she found it hard to believe that her dad was a murderer. Yeah. According to the daughter's accounts, Fred Sexton was by no means a good guy. She did spill some terrible things about him to Steve at their meeting, uh, her dad, just like George Hodel, they were both sexual predators and were both accused by their own daughters of repeatedly sexually assaulting them as kids. Oh, wow. So, yeah, like I said before, we know that George Hodel was not a good guy. The man literally was on trial for raping his daughter. Yeah. I mean, that's or no, enough. he was on trial for 
murdering his secretary. It was the secretary, yeah. But, but he also was accused of raping his daughter, yeah. which she is still accuses him to this day. Yeah. Like, that's like a... He was a sexual predator. Absolutely. Um, so it's not like he was a good guy. But you're right. The compulsion that Steve has is what's fascinating to me, that he does want to link his dad to all of these things. I get wanting to figure it out, but at some point you have to recognize that you're linking too many things... That's just not possible. It like, would seem more believable to people if it was just the Black Dahlia killer. Because then you just focus on one angle. Focus on one. And I do feel like some of the women in LA, that's more logically linked than like the Zodiac. Right. Or like the other, wasn't there like, wasn't there even like a Manson thing yeah. or something? Like the, when it starts getting into other popular crimes, that's when I'm like, well, you can't just tie it to every popular <laughs> like murder. Like, yeah. Like he thinks he shot JFK or something. Yeah. Like I do think it's like reasonable to be like these other women who fit the same, you know, profile era, era and they were murdered in sort of this way. But it's interesting because even as a detective, Steve Hodell, as a detective for all those years, like, wouldn't you see that now, like, our ways of investigating serial killers back then, we didn't even have a word for serial killer back then, and we didn't have, like, the method for deterrent, like, we didn't understand the, um, like, modus operandi back yeah, then. Yeah, like a profile of the what the killer would be like or something. Well, I just mean, like, the methods of the murders. Right. Because, like, the way Black Dahlia was killed was significantly different from the way that Jean French was killed or Dorothy was killed. Right. Or these other women who we will probably do episodes on at some point. Yeah. Maybe combine some of them. But, like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because like, Dorothy was strangled. Jean there's there's was, too many differences. Yeah, like they weren't all cut with a knife. I think the other thing that's sort of interesting is like obviously he's a, a professional detective, so he's right. skilled in that area. But his emotional, like he's too he's too personally attached to this story, I think, to be logically... Do you know what I mean? Like he it's almost like he needs someone sort of kind of being, nope, 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 don't go down there, like... Do you know what I mean? Like he can't be objective. No. So another wild theory he had about the lipstick, you know, his dad, George was friends with the artist man Ray. Yes. And he talks about that all the time. Uh, I had to bookmark this in the book and I do recommend you read the black Dahlia Avenger. If you're into weird theories. Yeah. I want to read it. History of like this, his dad who is a monster and like these just wild stories. Like, I recommend it. It's like a interesting read. And like we said, he's a really interesting person. Like, so another lipstick theory in the book is that he's ta- he talks about like his dad, George's love of the artist Man Ray and how they were friends. And that at one point, George, like later on in his life, like in the late 80s, he had a picture, like a painting commissioned by this artist named Fernando Modesto. And it was basically like a take off of this Man Ray work of a pair of lips. Okay. So he's comparing the picture that his dad had commissioned with this Man Ray piece. And he's like, look, look at the like, oh, this is it. Um, he, he's talking about like the similarities between the two and, and what it symbolizes. And he, um, 
He says, the answer may be hidden in the work itself and what it appears to represent. First, the work is a form of flattery. It's imitation of Man Ray's lover's lips that extend across the horizon. However, unlike the Man Ray work, the lips in the Modesto are not full red, and the bottom lip is only partially covered. Also, the irregularity on the bottom line in the Modesto suggests dripping blood rather than lipstick. And directly above the lips are three human phalluses. To the left of the lips is a blue canal in the shape of a vagina, above which a squadron of nine yellow and ten blue oval-shaped objects seem to be flying, each with their own little trailing sperm-like tail. Do the different colors represent George Hodel and Fred Sexton? These were some of the questions I asked myself when I looked at this painting again in the context of what I had just discovered. End quote. I mean, he's looking into too many things. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? When it's someone sees like subtext or meaning into every little thing. Right. It's just, no one's thinking that hard. Because you can find it anywhere. Right. I mean, we've talked on some things, like I think with the dime bag, Daryl, there was like some stuff with John Lennon, like, because the dates were the same and like, right. then they find all these like similarities, but they're after the fact. Do you yes. know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. And then you're also not telling all the things where they don't line up. You're just focusing on the few things that do line up. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that's the story of Jean French, but I, I, <laughs> the George Hodel stuff really is wild. The Steve Hodel stuff. Yeah. No, I want to read that book. You should. It definitely looks good. I didn't know this case at all. I mean, the lipstick killer sounds familiar, but I bet you that's used it is. In other cases, probably. There right? was a dude, I think, in Chicago that murdered a bunch of women. Oh, that might be the he one I heard. He was a serial killer. Right. I think that's where he was. But um, but yeah, this, I mean, and this faded into obscurity because it's the Black Dahlia is the one that everyone remembers. I mean, it's a really gruesome, awful crime. It is interesting, though, that that one took, sort of took hold. Yeah. And I think it's because it it got the name, and then she did have a particularly gruesome discovery. Yes, and everyone has sort of seen those pictures. Um, but yeah, it's almost like selling it with the the name Black Dahlia. And she was also a twenty two year old like uh, up and coming actress, or right? Aspiring. She had she had the story, yeah. storyline, even though she really wasn't. No, like you know what I mean. It was all sort of built up by the press. Yeah, so it's interesting though. Yeah, um, cool. Yeah. Any final thoughts? I don't have any final thoughts. Okay. Let's get Del Taco. Okay. And we'll be posting pics, right? Are there yes. good pics for this? Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll okay, post pics awesome. on our Instagram. Bye, guys. Bye.